This morning's reading, Psalm 37. I'm going to be reading just verses 3 and 4. That's the emphasis this morning. Psalm 37, verses 3 and 4. This is the word of the Lord. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would meet us in such a unique way this morning. Wherever we are in our life, whatever's going on in our soul, whatever circumstances we are in, your word is sufficient to bring life directly to us. We pray for that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I read a story uh, this week about a blind judge who lives in Michigan who drove a car for the first time. It's a really cool story. Let me just read a, a portion of this article. A blind Michigan judge went for a drive and a sheriff rode shotgun with him. As a hundred people watched, Richard Bernstein of the Michigan Supreme Court drove a car on a dirt track on Tuesday at the Genesee County Fairgrounds, northwest of Flint, Michigan. Quote, I've always wanted that feeling of what it's like to hit the gas or what it's like to turn on the ignition and what it's like to operate a steering wheel, he said. The sheriff was in the passenger seat giving directions and encouragement they wore helmets. Quote, straighten it out, soft left, soft left. He's doing it, he's doing it. He says, the, the, the blind judge said he's seeking re-election in November, um, but he doesn't let blindness discourage him from certain goals. He's actually run more than 20 marathons in life. He said, my whole life, I've loved making people's dreams come true, the sheriff said. I love seeing joy on the face, and I've seen it the last two hours driving with him up here. Can you just imagine what it's like driving a car for the first time, knowing that you've never been able to do it? And when I, when I mentioned about running 20 marathons as a blind person, it actually got me thinking about another story that I'd heard, which is kind of more local up here. Maybe you've heard this story. It's the story of a man named Dick Hoyt, who pushed his son, who was a quadriplegic, and has, and has cerebral palsy. And he ran, he ran with him, pushed him, his quadriplegic son, to run the Boston Marathon for the first time in 1980. But they've completed since then 32 Boston Marathons together until in 2014 uh, he had health issues and was unable to continue running. Uh, but they've, they've run in all kinds of races together. I think here it says they've participated in more than a thousand, race, a thousand races, including duathlons, triathlons, and in 1992 even completed a, a run and bike across the United States, coming 3,735 735 miles in 45 days. In 2013, they actually put a statue of these guys in Hopkinton, down in Mass. Um, just an amazing story of someone, so two stories here about one, a blind man who could never drive on his own, 
but getting the sheer joy of someone helping him do it. And then a quadriplegic who would never be able to run a marathon or do all these amazing athletic accomplishments on his own, and yet his father helped him do it as well. The quote from, uh, from Dick Hoyt is this, I'm sorry, it's, it's from his son, Rick. He says, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like I'm not disabled. Joy of a blind man driving, the feeling of not being disabled when your father pushes you running a marathon. The theme this morning and the commonality of those two stories and how it intersects with Psalm 37, which is this beautiful psalm, is gaining delight through dependence. Both of these examples are people who had to be utterly dependent on someone else to find sheer delight that otherwise they couldn't have experienced if they weren't leaning heavily on someone else. And so the title of the sermon this morning is how, do you, how to get everything you ever wanted in life. That's, I bet if I went out on the streets of Salem and said, hey, I'm going to talk this morning about how to get everything you ever wanted in life. I bet I could get a lot of people in here interested in what I'm about to say. And yet, by the time this sermon is finished, you wonder how many people would believe what I'm about to say. Because what Psalm 37 leads us into is everything you've ever wanted in life is possible, but you have to become someone that you can never be on your own. You must become someone totally new to get everything you've ever wanted in life because it takes full-scale dependence to find delight in life. And so we're going to walk through just these two verses of this beautiful psalm. This psalm, and it's 40 verses long, that's why I'm not going to do the whole thing. There's just gold throughout this psalm, so I encourage you to read it on your own sometime. It's actually organized, interestingly, uh, if you were to read this in Hebrew, the original language, it's, it's an acrostic poem. So it begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and each stanza goes through the Hebrew alphabet with the first letter. So by the time it finishes, it finishes kind of like A to Z, except in the Hebrew version. And so verses 3 and 4, we're kind of jumping in at like letter C and D, if you're thinking about it in the ABCs. But we're going to focus on these two because they're so powerful, and they can be so encouraging to us. But first, I want to focus on, you know, if we're talking about getting everything you ever wanted in life, and I said just a second ago, you have to become someone you can never be on your own. You have to become someone totally new. Let's focus on that first. How do you become someone totally new? Verse 3 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Consider for a moment just who is the person that you've always wanted to be? So my name is Stephen. I'm different than you. I probably have desires of what kind of person I'd like to be that are probably a little bit different from you. But who is the person you've always wanted to be? You know, it's very common in our world today to use the phrase, um, I want to become a new me, or I want, I want to you know, be, be a new version of myself. And, you know, there's examples of trying a new diet or starting a new career, getting a haircut, setting better goals or changing certain habits in your life, just... I want to put on the new me. I want to be a new Stephen and kind of make myself brand new. 
Um, the idea is that you can still be essentially you, right? I can still be essentially Steven, but you just need to make some cosmetic changes in your life to be a new and improved version of yourself, which there's some validity to that. I mean, you can obviously eat better or kind of change habits or, or set some goals that you can be better. But the idea behind that statement is that you basically are the one still running the show of your life, that you are the primary agent of your life. You get to take control. You're still running your life independent of anybody else. And I think there's two things in verse 3 that actually kind of back that up in some sense. One of them is the phrase, do good. You know, these are they're, they're two common things that are fairly easy for most people to agree with in this text. The first one is do good, and the second one is dwell in the land. And so let's focus on those two for a second. When it says here to do good... I mean, again, if I were to walk into the middle of Salem and say, do good, I probably wouldn't have anybody yell anything back at me like, why would you say such an offensive thing? That's awful. No, I think I'd get a lot of people saying, thank you. That's a very positive message that you're communicating. It's popular today to serve those who are disadvantaged or to help others or to be a good person, to show kindness, to be, to be a, a nice, kind, compassionate person. I don't think anyone will really argue with doing that today. It's one of the major purposes in life, and it should be one of our goals in life as well. And the fact that the Bible says do good, not just here, but all over the place, is encouraging. Because I think most people would agree with something like that. Secondly, where it says dwell in the land, I mean, it's a little bit of a fancy way to say it, but it's essentially just saying live your life, right? Be present. Be fully where you are. Maybe that's a phrase that you hear more common in the modern world. You know, be all there. Be present. Don't be living somewhere else in your mind. Don't be always looking for the next best thing, but kind of be fully where you are. Essentially, just live. Be content. Be present. Live in the moment is another way to put it. And again, that's very popular today, too. In a frantic, kind of transient, fast-moving world, I think the value of just being present, being rooted somewhere, is gaining a lot of traction. You know, it gets to be a time, you know, I'm, I'm 34, for instance, so we're kind of at a place in our life where it's like, we'd like some roots. We just kind of want to be in one place. I mentioned, you know, some people that are moving or, or thinking about moving or in the middle of a move right now, it's jarring. And so just being present and dwelling in a place is good. And you kind of get to a place where you want to settle down some deep roots. Here's the problem, though, with if you just leave it with those two things to try to be the new you, do good, be present, live in the moment. The problem with those two things is that our individualism is way too big. We are way too individualistic as people to just do those two things and do it with purity of heart. Eventually those two things run out of steam because they're focused primarily just on ourselves. Most of our lives are, are spent focusing just on our individual selves and it, our life can easily become pretty inward or self-centered or um, our purpose can be skewed a little bit. So I, I read something really interesting this week. I'm going to read it to you. But many of you probably know the Lord's Prayer. We recite it often. Um, 
during the prayer time together, and we do it just from memory. Our, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. If you read the Lord's Prayer, or if you pray it, you'll notice that it's a, it's a collective prayer. It's a prayer from a group of people. Our Father who art in heaven. You know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debt. It's a very, you hear that, the community aspect to it? I read this week the modern individualist Lord's Prayer, which someone basically took and applied it just as like a self-centered version of the Lord's Prayer. You want to hear this? My essence within, help me to find my true self. My kingdom come, my will be done from birth to seventh heaven. Give me today my daily spread. Forgive not my enemies as I cancel those who sin against me. Lead me not into self-doubt, but deliver me from all external authorities for the kingdom, the power, and the glory are mine and forever. Amen. Do you hear the, it's the parallel, but self-centered, individualist prayer. Verse three teaches us to be fully and deeply dependent on God. Because I think as I read that prayer, even if, even if you're not fully there yet in terms of like saying, yes, I'm a full-fledged Christian. I'm definitely following Jesus. I'm convinced of this. Even if you aren't in fully in that place, I think there's probably something about that prayer that makes you cringe a little bit. Because it's, it's a little too me-focused, isn't it? And when we read the Lord's Prayer, we feel the dependence on God. We must learn to be truly and deeply dependent on God. And that's why it takes two uncommon things in verse 3 to really become the person that we need to be. Trust in the Lord is what it starts with. This is the balance to just doing good. Doing good is great, right? Serve the poor, help the needy. But do so while trusting in the Lord. Life must be more than just empty good works. There must be a reason for the good works that we do. Giving yourself over to a God who is outside of all time and circumstances, who's in control, who's governing the universe, and yes, who's in charge of your individual life too. And part of trusting in the Lord, trusting in the Lord means learning to not trust in our own natural heart inclinations. You know, Jeremiah 17 tells us that actually the human heart is naturally deceitful. That if we just trust our heart all the time, we actually can be led astray. It calls it desperately sick. That's what verse 9 of Jeremiah 17 says. So we need to be a little skeptical about our first desires and assumptions because we're sinful, broken people. Trust in the Lord, it says. The second balance then in this verse is the balance to just dwelling in the land. The balance to that is to befriend faithfulness, to become a great friend of the faithfulness of God. Life is more than just being in one place or being rooted. It must be accompanied by a purposeful way of living. You know, it's great to just lay down roots and to be somewhere, but 
For what purpose? For what meaning? To have a white picket fence and a great comfortable house? Or for something more? And this passage tells us to befriend faithfulness. That means to become so close with the ways of God that faithfulness happens not as a surprising thing, but just as a natural outpouring of your relationship with God. It's like the joy of just hanging out with a good friend with no agenda just because you like to be with them. You learn to befriend faithfulness in that way. Are you hanging out with faithfulness? Are you choosing to know God's ways so well that that it just becomes part of your life? Faithfulness is your friend. As you live where you are, befriending faithfulness. And this means that we can't trust our own paths or the world's preset path for our life. So this this kind of butts up against the American dream, right? Where it's, again, individualistic, make the most of your life. Befriend faithfulness means put that to the side, trust the faithful ways of God, and trust that that is actually the best path for life. And if you put these four things together, trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, befriend faithfulness, the result is actually that new person, the new Stephen, the new you. It's a transformed person because through those four things, you get introduced to the person of Jesus and you get to see how he perfectly did those four things. And then you're, as, as John 3 says, you, you get invited to be born again, to put on a whole new self. You become a renovated, transformed person with a new heart and a new spirit. Ezekiel 36 has the promise of God where it says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's what the first part of verse 3 is leading us into, is this new person. This person you can't become on your own, but you get invited into because of the faithfulness of Jesus. And that then leads us into the exciting part of life, which is the delight that comes in life in verse four. Verse four says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So this is the invitation from us now to say, what what desires do you have? What are your deepest longings in life? What is it that you want more than anything else? What do you desire? Not just, what, not, not just what do you need. You know, we all need shelter and clothing and food and water. Notice this, this passage isn't asking us to say, he will give you the needs. You know, the Lord's prayer promises that. This passage says he will give you the desires of your heart. He'll give you the wants. He will satisfy you in a way that no one else, nothing else can. So it comes down to, what do you want in life? because he's promising to give it to you. Remember how I said our our individualism is too big. We need to learn to kind of deflect from ourselves and live more collectively and for others. In this section, we, we should say that actually what the Bible teaches us is that our desires usually are too small. We actually find in ourselves because we don't trust God, we actually don't ask him for the big things. We actually don't trust that our desires could be met. So we hold back and our desires actually are too small. So 
on the front of your bulletin today, um, which I apologize that it's printed upside down, by the way, speaking of surprises. Um, but on the front of your bulletin today is a quote from C.S. Lewis, one of his famous quotes. And he, he just nails this for us. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. So he says those are some of the desires that most of us think would satisfy us. We fool around with those things when infinite joy is offered to us. We are far too easily pleased, is what he says. God is promising us deep delight by giving us the desires of our heart, but it has to come only through that transformed person. Because again, if you're not a transformed person, you're going to be asking for some things that are not going to be ultimately life-giving to you. Things like drink and sex and comforts that are just fleeting, that are going to disappear one day. But if you're transformed, if you're a born-again person whose desires have been changed, God will give you the deepest desires of your heart, the wants of your life. We must delight ourselves in the Lord. That's another way of just saying being fully dependent on him. But let's just talk for a minute about what it means to delight yourself in the Lord. Because it's a beautiful phrase and I think our soul is longing after. But what does it actually mean to delight in God? I think it just means two simple things. It means loving God and loving what God loves. That's what it means to delight in the Lord. To love God and to love what he loves. Loving God, you have to spend time with him, to talk to him, listen to him. Just learning to love being in his presence. And I mean, again, picture your best friend, just the joy you get from being with your best friend in life. That's what God is offering us, that kind of enjoyment of relationship with him, with the God of the universe. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then by loving God, you learn to love what he loves. When you know someone well, you begin to know well what they love. And then if you love that person deeply, you'll begin to love those things too. My wife is a trooper. She loves me and she watches college football with me now. Why? Not because she loves college football, but because she loves me and she likes spending time with me. And I'm going to start crying because I love that she loves college football now. <laughs> Even when my team is really bad and we watch a lot of losses. But what does God love? The, the scriptures give us a lot of examples. Um, I'll just give you a couple here. Galatians 5 tells us the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Galatians 5 says, against such things there is no law. Because those are the things that God delights in. And when you love God and you've been changed by him, those are the things you start to desire. And you begin to display in your own life the fruits of the Spirit. Micah 5, 6 says to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly. It's another good list of just things that God loves that he wants his people to learn. Or maybe this one. This is from the Psalms. Um, Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 both talk about the beauty of God's law, which is understanding his ways in the world. And um, 
So again, I'd love to read all of Psalm 119, but we'd be here a while. So I'm going to read one verse from Psalm 19, verse 10. It's talking about the law of God. So verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. And then it goes down to verse 10. It says, listen to this. More to be desired than gold, even much more than fine gold, sweeter than honey, than the drippings of the honeycomb. That's what the law of the Lord is to those who love God. More to be desired than gold. Again, that's the trusting in the Lord and befriending faithfulness. So when you love God and you you learn to love what he loves, the result of those two things is then his desires become your desires. Your desire then isn't, isn't to do things that are the ways of the world just because everybody else says that they'll be fulfilling, but your desires begin to be shaped by God's desires. You get a renovated, transformed new desire to know him and to make, you know, make him known. And nothing else begins to matter. His priorities become your greatest priorities. I'm going to read a, a passage from Philippians chapter 3. It's, it's the Apostle Paul kind of working this out in his own life on paper for us. Because um, you may know a little bit about the story of Paul. You know, he, was, he was a hardcore Pharisee, just keeper of the law. I'm going to do these things because they're a duty. And then he had this radical transformation from Jesus who met him on the road to Damascus and his life changed, but he's still working out kind of his own desires and what his life is like. And in Philippians chapter three, verses one through 11, he kind of is encouraging a church to say, this is where I am in my desires. And um, let, me, let me work it out with you. And so he, he begins by talking about, you know, how perfect of a Pharisee he was. He kept the law so well. But then in verse 7, he transitions. He says, my desire used to be to try to keep the law perfectly. But now in verse 7, whatever gain I had, I now count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul's at this place of deep contentment saying, this is what I used to desire. That's been changed because I met Jesus. And now knowing him and having his desires form me, that's everything. Talk about going all in on one person. That's what the Bible invites us to do. To bank your life on the person of Jesus. In other places in scriptures, it says, at the end of the day, you'll either be the greatest fool there is, or you'll be with him forever in eternity. And that's the assurance that the Bible gives us, is that this is true. And that by banking your short life on earth here, you are gaining an eternity with him. And you're getting everything you ever wanted in this life by knowing him and being full of his life. Let me close with this story. 
since I mentioned C.S. Lewis earlier, I thought I'd just kind of double down on C.S. Lewis. Um, many of you know the, the Narnia stories. And um, particularly, there's, I was thinking about the word delight. And if you're, th- if you're tracking with me already, the Narnia stories and the word delight, there's a part in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Edmund, one of the little boys, um, is talking with the White Witch who's kind of cast a winter spell over all of Narnia and everything's under her submission. And he, and she's trying to get Edmund to, to bring the rest of his family to her so that she can rule them and not have them fix everything. And Edmund says, sure, but what do I get for it? And she says, well, what do you want? Do you remember what he says? Turkish delight, Turkish delight, which again, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was written several decades ago. And so I found an article this week that was saying, why was Turkish Delight picked by C.S. Lewis as like the thing that this boy wanted? And so this is written during a World War II context where things were not as available as, as during normal times. And so he explains in this article how Turkish Delight was a real delicacy and a sweet treasure possession for many British people during wartime. And so if you're a, a person who was first reading this several decades ago, they would have said, oh, Turkish delight. I would have liked that as well. And so, the, but the article still continues to kind of question, like, you know, it's still kind of a silly thing to ask for. He could have said anything, but he said, I want this sweet Turkish delight candy. And so at one point in this article, it says, Seriously, Edmund, would you have handed Winston Churchill over if she offered a Mars bar? Uh, Kind of this kind of cynical comment. But as it goes on, let me just read the end of this article for you, because I think it arrives at a really telling point for us. It It says, of course, just as the costs had gone down, the outbreak of World War II and its subsequent rationing meant that the candy was harder than ever to come by. Perhaps this is why it became so significant to Lewis. As he welcomed refugee children into his Oxford neighborhood, he thought back on the candies and holidays that had marked his own childhood. It makes sense that Turkish delight would have been on Lewis's mind as he crafted a book where Christmas features as a main theme. In Narnia, it says, it's always winter, but never Christmas. It's one of the lines that's mentioned and a product of the white witch's evil magic. It makes sense to draw a parallel between this dismal fantasy and the stark realities of wartime. Rationing extended to timber, which made Christmas trees harder to come by, and confectionery rationing didn't end until February of 1953, still well before the end of sugar rationing later that year. When the white witch asks Edmund what he'd like best to eat, it's entirely possible that Lewis was answering for him the candy that would be the most difficult and expensive to obtain. Edmund isn't just asking the witch for candy, he's essentially asking her for Christmas too. And I think that gets to the heart for us. The things that we, our natural desires go after are often short-sighted. They're often silly little things, but they are reflections of longing for the true something, the Christmas something. Longing for the hope of eternal life, longing for purpose and meaning in this life, 
And the beauty of Psalm 37 is that it gives us this promise of if you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the deepest longings of your heart. So as we come to the Lord's table and take the Lord's Supper in just a few moments and taste you know, the bread and drink the cup, we're reminded of the Lord's great love for us and how he's given himself fully so that we might have full life. So I ask the deaconesses to prepare themselves to serve the Lord's Supper. And as they do so, let me pray for us um, as we transition to the Lord's table. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the gift of the Psalms, which we've been just basking in this summer. Uh, would you teach us to love them and to love the prayers and to, to pray them well uh, throughout all of our days and to remember this amazing truth this morning that, that you offer us infinite joy, infinite desires, the promise of Christmas, the coming of, of the Messiah who's given us full life who ultimately gave his life for the many, laid down his life for us so that we might experience full life and our deepest desires might be met. So meet with us in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.